Prestige Heads, and welcome to American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner, here as always with my friend and comrade, Derek Davison. And don't snooze, because we're about to bring you the news. Derek, let's start with Iraq. Yeah, there's a a brewing potential political issue uh, in Iraq uh, that has to do with something that the uh, Federal Reserve is doing here in the United States. The New York Federal Reserve, uh, a couple of months ago, uh, imposed restrictions on the outflow of dollars to Iraq, uh, primarily to try to interdict smuggling, dollar smuggling into Iran. Uh, what this has done is it's put Iraqi Prime Minister Mohammad al-Sudani kind of on the spot to do something to be seen to, to be trying to kind of go after these smugglers, which potentially could put him at odds with uh, many members of his political coalition who are affiliated with uh, the various militias, the Iraqi militias that are uh, more or less backed by Iran. Uh, so that's something to watch out for. The second thing, uh, the second implication of this dollar squeeze is that it has caused a massive decline in the value of the Iraqi dinar uh, over the past several months. I think it's gone from around 1470 to the dollar uh, in November to over 1600 to the dollar today that sparked protests on Wednesday uh, over the you know decline in value uh, and it's prompted calls from the protesters primarily uh, for Sudani to do even more to kind of crack down on the smuggling in the hopes that the US will kind of let up here so uh, you know political pressure uh, on him to any any Iraqi prime minister since the war I should say, any Iraqi prime minister has had to walk a tightrope between the U.S. and Iran, the two uh, dominant influences, foreign influences in Iraqi politics. Uh, Sudani came into office backed by uh, the, the coordination framework, which is a coalition that is largely aligned toward Iran. He's had to kind of, uh, you know, make it make it clear to the U.S. that he'll play ball on certain things. But um, you know, he could be in a bit of a behind a bit of a political eight ball uh, moving forward. Let's move on to Israel. Uh, yes. So uh, I just want to mention this because we've been following this story. Uh, people know that the uh, Israeli Supreme Court, I believe we mentioned this last week, uh, ordered Benjamin Netanyahu to fire uh, his Minister of Health and Minister of the Interior. They had combined these uh, under one person, uh, the leader of the Shas party, Arya Derry. There was some uh, speculation that Netanyahu and Derry might ignore uh, the court order, which would have thrown Israel into an even bigger uh, kind of constitutional tailspin than it's already in, Israel uh, rather into a bigger tailspin than it's already in. But Netanyahu did wind up firing Derry in uh, uh, this week. So uh, that presumably uh, is avoided. He wound up firing him over the weekend. Uh, that's presumably avoided uh, at this point. The Shas party will maintain control over both of their ministries, but Derry does not seem like he's going to pull his his uh, administration out or his party out of the coalition uh which would collapse it so uh it seems like everything's okay for the time being but the conflict as people know between Netanyahu's government and the Supreme Court where Netanyahu's 
cabinet, his very far right cabinet, is trying to uh, severely curtail the powers of the Supreme Court. That's that's still going on and is probably going to be uh, roiling Israeli politics for quite some time. I should also mention, because this is another story we've been kind of keeping track of, uh, there was an Israeli military raid in Jenin uh, on Thursday in which nine Palestinians were killed. Uh, two of them, at least two of them civilians, uh, I believe seven of them were uh, militants who were probably engaged in an open firefight with the Israelis. Uh, but this puts, I think, the Israelis up over one, uh, one death, one Palestinian killed per day uh, in the West Bank so far in 2023. So uh, really not the kind of thing that you would like to see from uh, just a basic humanitarian perspective. And, uh, you know, we're, I think we're in store for a, for a very rough year under this uh, new Israeli government. Terrible. Um, speaking of terrible, Afghanistan and NGOs threatening to leave over uh, women's rights. What's going on there? So, uh, yeah, there, this has been a, a back and forth for a few weeks now. NGO leaders, uh, aid organization leaders have been visiting Afghanistan to kind of ask the, the Taliban leadership to ease up on its virtually complete, at this point, ban on women in public life, with very few exceptions. Uh, Lynn O'Donnell, who's the Afghanistan reporter for foreign policy, reported uh, earlier this week that a number of uh, aid organizations were preparing to suspend operations uh, in Afghanistan uh, because of these policies. And, and there were concerns that the United Nations was basically going to acquiesce to agree not to work with women and not to have women staff and, you know, just, just to deal with men only. Uh, this is, this is a huge thing for the aid organizations, not just on the basis of kind of, uh, you know, not wanting to ratify this severe curtailment of women's rights, but, uh, it, it impacts their work to, to not have women, local women, uh, working as staff, uh, means that they can't really interact with, let's say, uh, female-headed households, households where uh, the, the the husband or the patriarch has uh, died or, uh, you know, was killed in the war that, you know, obviously, you know, didn't end that long ago. Um, you, you know, you can't have a male st- staffer interacting with uh, a woman that's also against the rules as far as uh, the Taliban are concerned. So this is a, this is a severe... Uh, handicap for them in terms of trying to to deliver aid uh, to Afghan families. Now, uh, the undersecretary, the UN's undersecretary for humanitarian affairs, Martin Griffiths, is in Afghanistan this week with a, a, a few other NGO leaders, and he seems fairly optimistic that the Afghan government is going to create a number of carve-outs in the prohibition on women uh, in the workplace uh, in specific areas. They've done this in some areas like healthcare. They do allow uh, women to work in healthcare to treat other women uh, in education to the extent that, that there are still girls in primary school. They allow women to, uh, to serve as teachers. Uh, they seem willing to consider these exemptions where they're not willing to consider uh, some of the calls for for kind of full policy reversal or uh, you know relaxation. So uh, I don't know. I, I I think it's a believe it uh, when you see it kind of thing. But uh, Griffith seems to think that that they'll be able to find a way to make this work. So what's been going on in Ethiopia? 
Uh, this is continuing again another story that we've been tracking: the implementation of the uh, Ethiopian peace deal between the federal government and the Tigray People's Liberation Front. Uh, the uh, on Friday, uh, there was a report in the Associated Press citing witnesses uh, in some towns across the Tigray region uh, who had observed Eritrean soldiers. Uh, kind of beginning to leave in a coordinated fashion and kind of convoys uh, beginning to leave those towns. Uh, this is a big deal because the presence of Eritrean soldiers and of uh, regional security forces from Amhara has been probably the biggest sticking point in terms of implementing uh, the peace agreement. So if they're finally leaving, uh, that should clear the way for the, the TPLF to uh, kind of further uh, disarm and demobilize, which is the where the big effect here has been. The TPLF has been dragging its feet uh, in terms of its requirements, uh, which is you know probably a good thing in the short term. It, it will um, further allow the region to be reopened to things like basic utilities and services, communication, humanitarian relief. So that is probably a good thing. Long term, I think the this. Uh, agreement still rests on a pretty shaky foundation in terms of what the status of the Tigray region is going to be within Ethiopia moving forward. I don't think anybody has uh, really shown any interest in addressing that, but that's going to be, you know, how you how they'll keep another conflict like this from from flaring up a few years down the road. So uh, I would say, you know, reason to be concerned on a long term basis, but but in the short term, this is a good sign that the Eritreans are leaving. Let's turn now to Bikina Faso. And uh, for people who are interested should check out our episode this week we did uh, on the Sahel. But Derek, uh, something has happened, in fact. Uh, yes. So this has been just uh, since we recorded that interview. So, uh, you know, we talked a lot about the relationship between France and the military junta in Burkina Faso and the collapse of its relationship with the military junta in Mali. Well, the relationship with the military junta in Burkina Faso is now collapsing. The junta... Uh, earlier this week gave uh, the French military one month, announced that they were giving them one month to get out of the country. Um, public sentiment uh, toward France is very negative in Burkina Faso right now. There is a sense that the French um, counterterrorism operation there, and a legitimate sense that it's done nothing uh, to actually counterterrorism, which leads to all sorts of conspiracy theories about, you know, the French actually working with Al-Qaeda or, or Islamic State, um, which don't have a lot of foundation in, in evidence, but it's frustration, I think, on the part of the uh, the people that, that this problem is, you know, still still festering. The junta was at, went, was at pains to stress that it was only ordering the French military out of the country, it was canceling its military cooperations, uh, cooperation agreements with France, that it was not severing the entire uh, Burkina Bay French relationship. And I think this is because uh, what happened in Mali was the, the Malian junta really turned toward the Wagner group, the Russian private military contractor for its counterterrorism assistance. Uh, and the French government just decided to break off ties completely. And, and I think I, I get the sense that uh, the junta in Burkina Faso didn't want that to happen. They've also been kind of assuring apparently the French that they weren't gonna gonna go the same route in terms of uh, contracting with the the Wagner Group, although they have had contract uh, contacts with Wagner, so I'm not sure uh, quite what to make of that. But it, things took a, a turn on Wednesday. The French Foreign Ministry announced that um, it will comply with the order 
uh, from uh, Burkina Faso to withdraw. Uh, and then uh, I think on Thursday, kind of shortly before we recorded, uh, the, the French foreign ministry announced that it was recalling its ambassador from Burkina Faso for consultations, which is the first step toward uh, something more serious in terms of a diplomatic um, kind of rupture. Uh, so this may be headed toward a, a, a full-blown uh, diplomatic break anyway, despite uh, what the uh, Burkina Bay Junta has been uh, saying. So, Derek, let's go to the war in Ukraine. And first, let's start with Russia. Uh, sticking with the Wagner Group, the Biden administration announced on f- last Friday uh, that it would be designating the Wagner Group uh, as a, quote, significant transnational criminal organization, end quote. Uh, it actually did that. It put that into effect on Thursday today as we're recording this shortly, you know, shortly before we recorded this. Uh, this puts Wagner on par with groups like the Italian Mafia, MS-13, the Yakuza. Uh, it makes it easier for the U.S. government to sanction the organization and its personnel. Um, it, the, the Biden administration cited specifically as its uh, justification uh, evidence that it, it claims to have that the Wagner Group has been buying weapons from North Korea for use in Ukraine, uh, which would be a violation of UN sanctions. But there, there's a whole host of, you know, operations that Wagner has undertaken around the world that the the, the Biden administration or the U.S. government finds uh, objectionable. So this has been, you know, a long time coming. Uh, but I'm not hugely surprised. And what about the war itself? Could you give a war update? And particularly, there's sure, talks about yeah, tanks. so I. To move into Ukraine, uh, I should start off, I guess, by noting that the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists moved the doomsday clock up 10 seconds. It's now at 90 seconds to midnight, which is uh, apparently a record if you're into such things. I don't, I find the doomsday clock to be pretty gimmicky, but, uh, you know, I guess point taken, uh, things are bad. <laughs> it's, it's, it's dangerous time out there. But is it a positive clock? Because it's going to be kind of nice if everything just ended. <laughs> <laughs> it just wiped it out. Yeah, maybe yeah, they should put uh, they they should offer that uh, interpretation to people. I think the big news out of Ukraine, of course, is that the great tank debate of 2023 can finally be put to rest. Uh, both Germany and the United States announced this week on Wednesday that they will be sending tanks, uh, the Leopard 2 in the case of Germany and the M1 Abrams in the case of the United States, to Ukraine. The German government additionally will allow any other countries that are using the Leopard, and the Leopard's really kind of the backbone of NATO's tank force, so it's it's pretty widely used around Europe. So it will allow any other countries that are using the Leopard to re-export uh, those tanks to Ukraine. And there's sev- been several countries that have suggested they would be prepared to do that. Poland has led the way on that. Norway, uh, Spain, uh, there, I think there are a few others that have said they, they would be willing to consider it if the Germans were to, uh, you know, agree to allow re-export. So they've, they've now done that. The goal, uh, is apparently to outfit the Ukrainians with two battalions, two full battalions of Leopard tanks over the next few months. Uh, the Germans are sending a company uh, initially of 14 tanks to Ukraine. There, there will probably be, be more to come. Uh, as far as the Abrams are concerned, the Biden administration announced that it would send 31 Abrams tanks uh, out of U.S. military stockpiles with more uh, allegedly to come, but they'll be uh, you know, kind of manufactured for Ukraine. So they're waiting, they have to wait for 
um, U.S. arms manufacturers to get those things off the production line. Uh, there is no timetable for any of this. And, and there are a lot of logistical complications with sending the Abrams uh, to Ukraine. It, it, it's a, it would require a, a lot of training for Ukrainian personnel. Uh, the Abrams is a, a, a difficult vehicle to maintain. It's costly uh, because of the engine that it uses, a jet engine, so it requires jet fuel to operate. There's a lot of things here that, that, that suggest this may not even be a particularly good choice for the Ukrainians uh, on the battlefield, at least not in the short term, kind of, you know, as they're uh, trying to, to turn the tide or, or, or deal with the Russian invasion. Um, and I'm not entirely clear that the Ukrainians even want these things, but, but it was obviously the case that the Germans would not have moved on their uh, leopard tanks uh, if the U.S. had not taken this, this simultaneous move uh, with the M1. Now that the tank issue has been put to rest, the Ukrainians have very quickly moved on to their next demand, which is F-16s or other fourth, so-called fourth-generation aircraft uh, from NATO states. The F-16 is the, the most prominent one on their list. Um, I would assume they will be getting those in a, a month or two after some hemming and hawing based on the uh, what happened with the tanks here, based on what happened prior to that with long-range artillery. There was this sort of uh, you know, public kind of hand wringing about it, but then eventually uh, the the U.S. and, and Germany uh, gave in, basically, or agreed to to supply these things. So, uh, I, I think jets are probably the next thing. That's going to be a, a a big logistical challenge as well. All these things conceivably could they turn the tide of the war, or could they allow the Ukrainians to go on another uh, major offensive? It's possible. Uh, things are still pretty stalemated. The Russians made some pro- have made some progress around Bakhmut, uh, where the Ukrainian military, I suspect, is being heavily pounded. Um, the U.S. Is, has been, you know, kind of advising them to to pull out of that region, but they have yet to do it. Um, so, you know, could this actually make a difference on the battlefield? It's 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 possible, uh, but I still think, you know, on, on a long time frame, if there's no negotiated settlement, ceasefire, something. Uh, the Russians are still in a, a, a stronger position to win a war of attrition um, in the sense. And, and again, well, you have to define win, um, but in the sense of at least holding on to what they've taken already, those parts of Ukraine, I think the Russians are probably still in, in fairly good shape. But, um, you know, obviously I am, I am no military expert, so uh, don't go by me. Derek, don't ever say that about yourself. Uh, let's move on to Sweden and what's going on there with Turkey. So Sweden's uh, NATO uh, application may be a dead letter at this point. Uh, Turkey, as we've mentioned, again, this is another story we've kind of been keeping up with. Uh, Turkey is one of two NATO members that have not yet approved, Hungary is the other one, not yet approved Sweden's NATO application, or Finland's for that matter, which are being, they're being treated as a sort of package deal. Uh, but Sweden is the big issue at this point. Uh, Turkey, the Turkish government has been demanding concessions from Sweden, uh, mostly related to Swedish support for the Kurdistan Workers Party, the outlawed uh, Kurdish group. Uh, but uh, a new issue uh, cropped up over the weekend uh, when Swedish authorities gave permission not only to the PKK uh, to hold a, a demonstration in Stockholm, but they also gave permission for a far-right politician, uh, Danish-slash-Swedish national named Rasmus Paludan, 
to hold a protest outside the Turkish embassy in Stockholm in which he, among other things, burned a copy of the Quran. Uh, this, I think, has given the Turks a justification to do some performative outrage, some of it real. I mean, there's been outrage all over the Islamic world about this protest and about the Quran burning. I think some of it uh, on the part of Turkish officials specifically may be a little bit performative. Um, but uh, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, the president of Turkey, suggested on Monday that um, you know there's no support now for Sweden's uh, for approving Sweden's NATO membership within uh, Turkish politics. And the, the Turkish parliament will have to vote on this at some point to, to approve their uh, application. And, and you know, the, he suggested there's, there's really no support for it now. Um, the Turks have canceled a couple of meetings. There was supposed to be a meeting between uh, the Turkish defense minister, Hulusi Akar, and the Swedish defense minister, Pal Jonsson. Uh, last week, uh, they canceled that. There was supposed to be a three-way meeting uh, with the foreign ministers of Sweden, Finland, and Turkey uh, in Brussels uh, probably next month uh, that the Turks have now canceled. So they're, they're at least uh, making it seem like they're done talking and, and this is not going to uh, go anywhere. I think the, the goal is to, uh, of course, terrify Sweden into making more concessions. There's nothing that, that Erdogan would like more than to uh, finally approves Sweden's NATO membership because Sweden has given him everything he wants. And it may not just be Sweden at this point. He may have feel he has the leverage to demand concessions from, let's say, the United States, uh, which is supporting the YPG militia, which is closely linked to the PKK uh, in Syria, um, so closely linked that the Turks don't really uh, perceive or, or acknowledge a difference between the two organizations. Um, he wants to finalize the sale of F-16s, more uh, modern F-16s from the U.S. to Turkey that's been held up uh, in Congress. Uh, so, you know, he may be looking for, for things that uh, are outside of Sweden's purview uh, at this point. And again, I think um, this this Quran burning, while you know uh, the Swedish officials have been at pains to say we don't agree with this, we don't think it was a we don't think it was right. Uh, but there are speech issues involved here, expression issues that we couldn't step in legally and prevent it. Nevertheless, I think it's given uh, the Turks the grounds to to take a, a much harder line and potentially uh, try to squeeze more out of uh, Sweden than they've been able to do so far. And let's end with Peru. Yes. Yeah, so uh, for six straight days here, I think uh, maybe seven at this point, there have been protests in Lima. Uh, these protests kind of spread from the southern part of the country uh, where they've been ongoing since last month's ouster of, of former President Pedro Castillo uh, and uh, his arrest after you know he, he attempted to dissolve Congress. Protesting in Lima had kind of taken a, a break over the Christmas, New Year's holidays, but it has ramped back up in a, in a major way. It started Thursday, I believe, and, and has continued all the way through. So I guess we are on day seven. Um, and it's, it's involved, uh, as have all these protests, a violent police backlash, heavy use of tear gas. Um, I haven't seen any reports of people killed in Lima, but the police have been uh, fairly brutal by, by most accounts. They raided San Marcos University uh, in Lima over the weekend uh, because there were apparently uh, protesters who had been bused into the city uh, who were on that campus. 
Dina Boluarte, the interim president of Peru, gave a press conference on Tuesday. Her resignation has been one of the demands of the protesters. She uh, uh, re-emphasized her unwillingness to resign, although she has suggested she would leave after uh, the next election, which may be brought forward to April 2024. Uh, She apologized for the dozens of people who have been killed since the protest started, but she offered a very, uh, I would say, disingenuous defense of Peruvian security services uh, she insisted that it's the protesters who have been to blame for all the violence that's attended these protests. Uh, she insisted, absent any evidence or really even any logical framework, uh, that the, I think at this point, approaching 50 or may have topped 50 by now, uh, protesters who have been killed amid these protests have been killed by other protesters, not police. Uh, again, I don't think there's any way to, to square that circle, but that's her story and she's uh, sticking to it probably because she's at this point more or less at the mercy of the security services. There was a move on Wednesday to impeach Boluarte in Congress over the perennial permanent moral incapacity clause, which is uh, allowed uh, a number of proving presidents to be impeached over the years, uh, or at least threatened with impeachment on kind of dubious grounds. Uh, I don't think the, the, the grounds for impeaching Boluarte would be that dubious at this point, frankly. But I don't, uh, I suspect it's not gonna, gonna get anywhere. Um, it was signed, the motion was signed by 28 members of Congress, uh, all supporters, supporters of Castillo. Um, that's barely above the minimum, and it's far from the uh, two thirds that they would have to, two thirds majority they would have to eventually get to, uh, to oust Boluarte if things got to that point. Um, Boluarte is a, a creature at this point. As we talked with Javier Puente about this, he's, she's a creature uh, of the security services and uh, the right wing in Congress, and so I, I think they're going to protect her to put really a, a sort of legitimate democratic face. Uh, on what has been a, a, a pretty brutal response to the protesters. Derek, thank you so much. Today, we dined on fine news, and we'll see everyone soon. Bye. Bye. Bye.